This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Well, welcome to the last installment of Playlist. I'm so thankful that you have been here. I've been so literally so amazed every week as we've dived into these books that were written literally thousands of years ago that they remain uh, thoroughly applicable and meaningful to our lives today. Next week, we start a brand new series for us called On the House every week throughout the month of August. We have people who are slated to be here who are friends of the house. All right, that's one way to think about it. That they uh, serve in many ways this house in varying degrees from a distance and to really kind of get some space for you with them. We've invited them to be here over the next few weeks. I'm so thankful for them and what they're going to bring. If you've been around in August, you know it's as if like every week just God takes us to a new place. It's a good time to be in church. And so I want you to just go ahead and plan on Don't miss a Sunday in August. And then in September, literally uh, just a little over five weeks from now, we celebrate our 10th birthday. Um, instead of having a bunch of uh, like celebrations, we're actually going to declare a week of seeking God. I'm going to call it Seek Week 22. All right, so we're going to go after God. Just You're familiar with our rhythm at the beginning of the year where we start off with 21 days of prayer and fasting. Just think of it as a really intense seven-day version of that fasting, seeking God. We're going to do a prayer service every night at our downtown campus. Um, and then it's going to culminate in serve day. And, and we, we really want to come together as a church, serve our community through some service projects. I want to invite you, once we publish the link, to go ahead and get on and say, hey, that's what, I'm going to be there. I'm going to come and I'm serve. I don't, whatever I can do, I'm going to be there to help. And that'll let us know and, and kind of give us the idea of who's going to be there. Let us populate the teams, understand the workforce that we'll have. Now, uh, the Minor Prophets really is the, the books out of the Bible that we've focused on in this series. And what we've saw is that throughout redemptive history, uh, the people of God, instead of obeying God, rebelled against God. And as they did, what happened? God would raise up a prophet. All right, prophets, their job is simple. It's to share the word of the Lord with the people of God. And so throughout the Bible, God continued to elevate those. As a matter of fact, one of the minor prophets said, this is the book of Joel. He said, in the last days, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Which means that in these days, the, the movement of the Spirit is God selecting, highlighting, choosing young men, young women uh, to speak through. That He would give them a word and they would share it with the people of God. And you think about that as, as the people of God were literally being so disobedient... It's really easy to think that what God would be doing, he was correcting, disciplining, and, and some of that is obviously true, but I've told you this before, you can make a point or you can make a difference, but you rarely get to make both. And so it seems through the ministry of the prophets that God was not trying simply to make a point, he was trying to make a difference. God intended the prophets really to use them to turn the hearts of his people back to himself. It was the whole intention. He wasn't just trying to tell them everything that they were doing wrong. There are 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. 
We've looked at five of them throughout this series. We're actually planning, this is going to be so fun, we're planning to come back to this series next summer and, uh, and really kind of close it out so we can go back through the rest of the Minor Prophets. And the first week that we looked at this, we went through the book of Micah and we saw that in a time of economic prosperity, people are growing in their wealth. There was increasing disobedience. And Micah invited the people of God to live justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God as the world changed around them. Micah 6, verse 8, which is a verse that I think that the, the world would be better if Christians today tried to focus on that and live it out. We looked at that in the first week. Then we looked at the book of Obadiah, which is a prophecy against the neighboring nation of Edom that stood by and watched as God's people were, were really overcome and then plundered. And Obadiah, Obadiah shows us that God holds supreme power and will ultimately right the wrong things in this world. Profound little book in the Old Testament. Then we looked at the book of Joel, this prophet who's dealing with a famine, who's dealing with a drought, who's dealing with a plague of locusts. And Joel reminded us that God is faithful to fulfill his promises, even as we endure a season of suffering. Man, that's a good reminder. And some of us are in those kinds of seasons right now. And we just need to be reminded that God is still good. He's still going to take care of you. And last week, we looked at the, the book of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk teaches us that when we live by faith, trusting God in the midst of chaos and confusion, we can find strength by choosing joy. And so this week we're going to look at the book of Haggai. Now to, to get there and to understand this book, you really have to understand kind of the history around the minor prophets. The minor prophets intersect the timeline of redemptive history around the division of the kingdoms, the conquering of the kingdoms, the exile of the Jews, and then their return back to Israel. And so what I'm going to do is I want to take you through about a thousand years of history in about five minutes. So this all begins with God and Abraham, and God promises Abraham, I'm going to give you a promised land. And then the people of God begin to grow. You, you know the story. They leave in famine to go to Egypt, come back, wander. And then finally, Joshua leads them into the promised land. And the people of God demand a king, just like the nations that were around them, like the Philistines, like the Moabites. Uh, we want a king. We want a king. Give us a king. And so God begins to install kings. First King Saul, and then King David. Now, the tension between Saul, a bad king, and David, a good king, becomes remarkably apparent. And it's a tension that will live on and live on and live on. There are some good kings. There are a lot of bad kings that come about. And then after David, his son Solomon takes over. And Solomon does something that is very, very important. Solomon builds the house of God. He builds the temple. David got the instructions, but never built the temple. And Solomon, in all of his wisdom, comes behind David and builds the temple. It was remarkable. This is the height of Israel's influence, power, and, and, of, and, and of their wealth. And, and in that moment, they build the house of God. Now, you might be saying, well, why is this important? It's important because all throughout the story, our holy God wanted to be with his unholy people. 
This is the very beginning. In the garden, God shows up to walk every afternoon with Adam and Eve. Sin enters and all of a sudden there's a distance. We can't walk with God. And so as God gets his people out of Egypt, the Ark of the Covenant is installed and the tabernacle is installed. Why? Because now a holy God wants to dwell with his unholy people. Now, after Solomon, the kingdom divides into two different kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Jeroboam is the first king in the north. Rehoboam is the first king in the south. Now, this is important to note because Jeroboam, the king in the south, does something shown here on this map. He builds two other altars or places of worship. And it has absolutely nothing to do with spiritual obedience. He, he sees the people going south to Jerusalem to worship, to make a sacrifice. And you made a sacrifice to be made right with God. You'd sacrifice, you'd go to the altar and you'd bring the sacrifice and it would please God. And then you would be able to dwell in the presence of God in the temple, the glory of God that resided there. God wanted to be with his people. And the sacrificial system is what God had set up to atone for sin. But Jeroboam goes, hey, everybody's going south to Jerusalem. They're spending a lot of money. They're really investing in that city. Why don't we take that away? And what we can do is we'll put an altar at the south part of our nation and one at the north, and then that'll keep people from going to Jerusalem. It was all economic. It was all political. It had nothing to do with their spiritual endeavors of pleasing God. And God is not pleased. In 732, God sends the Assyrians to conquer the northern kingdom. Brutal judgment from God, taking away the people of God as slaves. A little over a hundred years later, the Babylonians in 597 conquer the southern kingdom for the exact same thing, their disobedience. We learned that last week in the book of uh, Habakkuk. God says, I'm raising up the Babylonians. In 597, it happened. And there's something really important that happens when the Babylonians take over. They destroy the temple that Solomon had built. Destroy it. As the method of the Babylonians. They'd come in, they'd sack a city, they'd take off all their most precious treasured objects and take them away. They destroyed the temple. Now this is what was going on during the exile. There's the Assyrians who take over Israel, taking the best and the brightest away. There's Babylon who did the same thing with the southern kingdom of Judah. Again, the enslaving the people of God. And Babylon, if you'll notice in this, actually then begins to send Gentiles. Let's populate the area. Let's get people there that aren't the people of God. Now, in Jesus' day, the Romans had rebuilt the temple to original specifications like it was with Solomon. But then later... It was destroyed. Now the thing is, if you go to Jerusalem today, this is how important it was to them. There's still a piece of that wall left. And it's now what's known as the Wailing Wall. This is where traditional, very devout 
And devoted Jews will show up to that wall. They'll put prayers in it. They'll spend hours just praying over that wall. And what are they praying? They're praying for the temple to be rebuilt. Y'all are going to see something in just a moment. God has already rebuilt the temple. It's just a little different than what they expect it to be. Now, in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel is one of those who's taken away. He's taken to Babylon. The king of Babylon has a vision. He doesn't know how to interpret it. He sees this statue, and Daniel interprets it throughout Daniel chapter 2. The head is Babylon, but I hate to tell you, Nebuchadnezzar, you're not going to last forever. Below every metal represents a coming kingdom that is going to take over the one before it. And so... Very shortly after this, in 538 BC, King Cyrus of the Persian Empire defeats the Babylonians. This is Cyrus. Now, this is so important because Cyrus comes in and goes, Oh, they brought all the Jews. Okay, you're the one who has the right lineage. You should be the governor. You're the one who should be the high priest. Why don't y'all select 50,000 people? Y'all go back and get it ready for everybody to come back. So he sends and dispatches 50,000, a remnant, to go back and prepare Israel for their exiled people to come home. Now, of the 12 minor prophets, nine of them minister before the exile, three minister after the exile as Israel is returning back to her place. That's the setting for the book of Haggai. The song that we looked at today by the Foo Fighters, Everlong, begins with the question, how long have I waited here for you? And the answer is the title of the song, Everlong. It's as if through the prophet Haggai, he's speaking to the people of God saying, I've been waiting on you. Let's get to work. The Jews return to Israel, but what are they returning to? They're returning to a city that had been destroyed. Jerusalem's in ruins. Their country is now even populated by Gentiles. They've lived in Babylon and in in Assyria. They've lived in lavish luxury, but they're returning to a lifestyle that's struggling. They're living through a drought and living through famine. And this is so big, the temple lays in ruins. The temple has been obliterated by the Babylonians. So this is where the message of Haggai comes in. The cool thing about this book, Haggai is so intentional about documenting the dates that we know that the action in this book takes place in just about four months. I mean, I can tell you, if you'll give God just a little bit of time, he can do a lot. And we see that in this book. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk you through the narrative of the book, which is only two chapters. And then I'm going to make some very simple observations. Here we go. Chapter 1, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. They say. Notice he doesn't say what he says. This is what they say. As a matter of fact, they had started when they got back rebuilding the temple. The foundation of the temple is done. But they have stopped building because they've encountered resistance. 
The Gentiles in the area are fighting back, trying to keep them from building it. This is where really some of the tensions, the early tensions between Jews and Samaritans come from. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom Israel. And they became really kind of in, kind of, combined with the Gentiles that were coming in. And so there's this kind of move away from traditional worship of God and they're starting to push back. And the people of God, I don't know if y'all have ever been here. It's hard, it's difficult, it must not be the right time. But then God speaks through Haggai, verse three. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourself? to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, the house of the Lord, lies in ruins? See, instead of building God's house, the people of God are building their own houses and their own lives. And God's got something to say about it. He's not pleased with that. He's not happy. In verse 5 and 6, look at what he says. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. The phrase, consider your ways, appears five times in two chapters. Most scholars say that's the, the theme of what God is saying to the people of God. Why don't you think about what you're doing? Consider your ways. It's as if in that verse, just real simply, God's saying, why don't you examine what your lives are producing? And then in verse 7 and 8, again, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring the wood and build the house that I may, look at what he says, take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Now, when I first read this, it's really easy to go, you, you want something, God, you're just saying you want this to take pleasure in so that you may be glorified. It seems as if God's got a little ego in there, but it's not. When God uses the phrase that I may be pleased. It's the same phrase that would have been used when somebody made an, a sacrifice to him. If you'll read through the Old Testament, they made the sacrifice and it was pleasing to the Lord. They made the sacrifice and the aroma of it was pleasing to God. They made the sacrifice and it pleased God. What it's as if God's saying is, listen, I want to return to a place where you're actually coming and making the sacrifice. I want you to be made right. I want you to be taken care of. I want you to bring the stuff before me that will please me to make the sacrifice. And to be glorified, really, I want a place where my glory dwells. See, the thing is, sin had to be atoned for. Sin causes separation and distance from God. And sin had to be atoned for. There had to be a price paid. And it's as if you hear the heart of God. God wants to forgive and restore his people. He wants to be close to them. Our holy God wants to dwell with his unholy people. At the end of chapter one, Haggai gets a simple message. 
the Lord wants you to know, just like in the past, he's with you. And immediately after that, in verse 14, I love this, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatiel, the governor of Judah, in the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, in the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. God begins to stir up something in the hearts of everybody. And where they were inactive, now through the prophetic message of Haggai, they are becoming active. They are stepping into God's vision. They are starting to get active in God's ways. And there's something in that verse that you probably missed. It's the name Zerubbabel. How many of y'all know that's a fun name to say? Zerubbabel. Go say that five times fast, right? It appears again in a book that many of us have read. Matthew chapter 1. And what we find is that Zerubbabel is actually a distant grandson of King David. He's the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. And the reason he's sent is because he's the rightful leader politically for those people. And you also find not only is he the distant grandson, he is the distant grandfather of Jesus. He's in the lineage of David that God gives birth to the Savior of the world. In this moment, the convergence of all the offices, the prophet, the priest, and the king all come together and the people of God unite. That's exactly what got them in the place they were in. All of those offices were all doing their own thing and God brings unity. In chapter two, God again speaks through Haggai. And he says this, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Who saw Solomon's temple? How do you see it now? It's not built, it lays in ruins. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Now, this temple would, as opposed to Solomon's temple, it would become known as Zerubbabel's temple. And there were many who had seen Solomon's temple in all its glory, who saw this temple when it was finished and wept. And they cried because of how underwhelming it was. This isn't as pretty. This isn't as ornate. I mean, this is, this is not as good, but it's as if God is anticipating that in verse seven and nine. Look at what he says. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations come in and I will fill this house with, look at this glory, says the Lord of hosts. The latter glory, in other words, the end glory of this house shall be greater than the former, than the former house, says the Lord of hosts. And this place is a place that I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. It's as if God's saying, listen, there are some things that I'm not going to restore, but I am going to restore what matters. And what matters in this temple is that you have a place to come and bring your sacrifices to be made right with me. And my glory is going to be here. There's going to be peace here in this house between me and you because of your sacrifices. And then there's also going to be a place for my glory to reside so that I can, what matters, I'm going to restore. 
know, this is a book about obeying God when it's challenging, when it's not easy. And the thing about Haggai's situation is it's so similar to ours. Obeying God in a culture, in a climate when obedience isn't always easy. And so I want to give you just simply four observations from this book as we wrap up this series together. Here's the first one. We are often tempted to build our own lives first instead of seeking to build the kingdom of God. We are often tempted to build our own lives first instead of seeking to build the kingdom of God. The people of God at this point are used to comfort. They are used to comfort. I mean, Babylon in the ancient world was home of some of the most beautiful things that the world had ever seen. But they come back and they begin to face opposition, begin to face challenges. And instead of facing them, they give up. And they walk away from what many would have said this was most important. If I were to ask you, every person in this room, what really matters to you? Most of us would say, well, you know, the most important thing in life is my faith. And then my, my family, my marriage, and my kids, and my, my parents, then maybe your career or your neighbors or what, whatever falls after that. For most of us, number one and two would be pretty solid. But can I share something I've seen happen so many times? So somebody will come and they, they love the church. Man, I've needed this. I've needed a place like this. I feel like I'll walk out and you've breathed life in, into my, my week and my life. I, I just, I need this. And they'll come in and they'll get plugged in and I mean, start serving. And then before too long, they're busy. Kids are playing ball. They're out, you know, having time with friends and family. And they'll come in and they'll go, man, we just don't have enough time. We're going to take a break. We're going to take a break. We just need time together as a family. We need time together as a family. We need time together as a family. So what are you going to do? You're going to actually walk away from what you would say is the most practical example of number one, right? Number one is what? My faith. And so a family will go, hey, we're going to take a break from coming to church so that we can actually, we can actually go, stay at home, spend time together as a family. I sat across in the last two weeks, I've sat across the table from literally many, many friends who over the past five years have walked away from being devoted to their church. Many of who are not even attending. And I looked at them and I asked them one simple question. Are you better for it? Are you better? Is your life better? Is your heart better? Is your family better? And every one of them, no. No. We've had some fun, but we're not better for it. What happens? We're tempted to invert that. 
We're tempted to say, oh, all of a sudden, no, family is more important than my faith. That's what's so amazing about this moment that somehow the convergence in this moment of this is a time where my family is poured into. We actually do experience this together, but all at the same time, like we're also encountering the presence of God. And the truth is there's not a person in here that has a thriving relationship with God who is divorced from a corporate experience with God. And what'll happen? You invert that and all of a sudden, faith starts falling down the list practically of what is important. Years later, how you doing? Not as good as I wanna be. Jesus addresses this in Matthew 6. And what he says, this is so simple, so practical, literally dealing with that idea. He says, seek first God's kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. His righteousness literally means to be right with God, to be the right person, to live the right life, to live the right way. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. There is nothing wrong was saying, I want to invest in my family. There's nothing wrong with, I need some time with my wife. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Those are good things. But when you invert that and that becomes number one thing that you seek, the problem is you might get that, but you don't get anything else. If you'll commit to build the kingdom of God first, God's not going to fail to build everything you need in your life. You need help with your marriage? I'm gonna go after God first. You need help with raising your kids? I'm gonna go after God first. You need help financially? I'm gonna go after God first. Why? Because if you'll go after God first, I'm gonna build your kingdom. I'm not gonna back off. I'm gonna be invested in this. God's gonna take care of everything else. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you as well. We'll be tempted to try to build our own kingdom. But we need to build his. Number two, we need to consistently reevaluate the ways we're living. We need to consistently reevaluate the ways we're living. Throughout this book, five times, the prophet hears from God a simple message to the people of God. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. In chapter one, he actually even gives them this beautiful list of consider these things. You've sown a lot, but you haven't harvested much. You eat and drink, but you never are full or satisfied. And I don't know if y'all can kind of identify with this statement, but you go to earn your living to earn your wages, but it's as if you put it in a sack that's filled with holes. It's as if God is looking at his people and saying, if you're not doing what I told you to do, you're not going to get what I told you you'd get. Oh, you thought you'd get peace. That's the promise, God. Where's my peace? Well, you're not doing what I told you to do. God, you said you'd heal my marriage. Where have you been? Well, you're not doing what I told you to do. God, you said you'd provide in my finances. You're not doing what I told you to do. There's some of us get awfully mad at God for not delivering what we think he ought to be delivering when we're not doing what he said we're supposed to do. 
And every once in a while, we need to take a step back and actually realize my ways, in humility, my ways are not God's ways. I don't care how long you've been following God, how many times God's redirected or corrected you, you are not God himself. Your ways are not God's ways. That's true for me and it's true for you. So every once in a while in humility, we need to take a step back and say, God, where am I blowing it? Where am I missing the mark? Psalm 139 contains a prayer I think we need to pray a lot. It starts out, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. I love this part. See if there's any offensive way in me. Is there anything I'm doing, believing, thinking that's offensive to you? And then lead me in the way that is everlasting. In other words, I'm not holding on to anything. It's all yours. If you'll just put, if you'll highlight it, I'll change it. If you'll give me the, the way, I'll follow. God, I'm here to follow you. My whole goal is just to be obedient. That's all I want. I don't even have to understand it. I just want to, God, show me. Because this book is really about in the middle of things that aren't going well. It's hard, it's difficult, it's challenging to say, God, I'll follow you. I'll, I'll, I'll be obedient. And the thing about obedience is a lot of times we'll look at God and say, there's no way I can do that. But if you're taking notes, this is a huge takeaway from this book, number three. Obedience shows us that what we thought was impossible is easy. Oh, it's so good. God said, forgive them. We're looking at God going, what? No, I can't forgive them. Don't you know what they did? Obedience shows us that what we thought was impossible is easy. To the people of God in Haggai's day, rebuild the temple? God, don't you know what we're doing? It's not, apparently it's not the right time. Because do you know all the stuff we're having to go through to rebuild the temple? It's impossible. Jesus is dealing with his people saying the exact same thing in Matthew 19. And look at what he said. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now hear me. Jesus doesn't say all things are possible. Because they're not. But with God, in God's will, in God's calling over your life, all things are possible. If God calls you to it, he's going to get you through it. If God calls you into something, you're going, there's no way it's going to work. God, I don't even know how this could happen. I don't know. If he calls you to it, he'll get you through it. There's some stuff we are tempted to say, that's impossible, I'll never be able to. You ever felt God tell you, you need to forgive somebody? And you're sitting there going, God, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know how bad it hurts. It's as if he's looking at you going, I, I watched people murder my innocent son. I don't understand. I understand what, like they just said something ugly about you on the internet. And you're telling me I don't understand? The most practical illustration of this is tithing. There's some of you that are like, what? I'm barely making it on my 100. How am I ever going to give God 10%? Just barely making it. God's going, listen, that ain't your 10%. That's mine. I'm trusting you with that. It's a faith exchange. Everyone, are you going to return it back to the house of God? Are you going to return it? 
Because faithfulness with a little leads to more. Are you going to return it? Are you going to return it? I can't. It's impossible. It's impossible. I'm barely making it. Here's a story I've heard so many times now. I love it. Somebody will come up in the lobby. Hey. And then, you know, we, we talked about the tithing thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started doing it. Really? Yeah. And I never thought that would work. Ever. Well, how long have you been doing it? About six months. How's it going? It's amazing. I don't, I don't, literally don't miss it. And for some reason, like there seems to be some more in there than there was before. I don't even understand how it's happening this way. It's amazing. What, what is it? Obedience shows you that what you thought was impossible becomes easy. And I, I can't do, yeah, I can. And what is that? It's faith. It's a step of faith, and God shows up and does what he says he's going to do. That's what obedience does. And that's what happened in their day. They took that step of faith. They, they came forward. All of a sudden, God is, is moving in their midst. The temple is being rebuilt. What they thought was impossible through obedience, they actually come to see. It's easy. It's easy. Which leads me to number four, the fourth takeaway. We should never stop building our temple. We should never stop building our temple. That means something to us that is different than what it meant to them. For them, it was showing up and collectively working to, you know, erecting the, the house of God, the, the altar of sacrifice, the place for the glory of God to dwell within. But do you remember what happened when Jesus died inside the temple? There was a curtain that separated the holiest moment where the, where the glory of God dwelt. And when Jesus died, that curtain ripped from top to bottom. It's as if the presence of God exploded on the earth. Around Jerusalem in that moment, there was an earthquake. Literally people came out of their graves alive. Because the Spirit of God was no longer confined to one place. So if you fast forward to 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul asks us a question that many of us have never considered. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that the Spirit of God dwells in your midst? You are the temple of God. You are. And in the same way that Haggai looked at his people and said, you have neglected building the house of God, it's as if some of us have forgotten that we were designed to be a lifelong spiritual construction project. That's what you were designed to be, a lifelong spiritual construction project. Digging into the word of God. God, where am I offending you? I just want to be obedient. God, help me to learn this. Help me to grow in this. So let me ask you, have you stopped building? Have you stopped digging into the heart of God? Going after the things of God? Being invested in the kingdom of God? See, even if you've laid the foundation, there's so 
much more to build. As Haggai spoke to the people, he said, listen, in this place, I'm going to bring peace. And so many of us don't have peace in our hearts. It's because we haven't done the work to build the temple of God in our hearts, to contain the presence and the power of God. Now, I just want to make a confession as we wrap this up. As I studied this book, I wanted to bring a message that was really about the post-COVID church. You know, in the last several years, there have been a lot of people who walked away from church. There have been a lot. Uh, People I love and I care for who got uprooted and out of church. Some of them haven't even been back in it. And at this point, it has nothing to do with the virus. It has to do with comfort and convenience. And then the, it's as if the, the decks of, of who is attending where got shuffled and this person that was over here is now over there and they're over here. And there was so much that was just uprooted and I wanted to preach a message about rebuilding the church because that's kind of what this book is about. And I gotta be honest, in my heart, maybe I felt a little bit like those who were looking over the temple, who had seen Solomon's temple, who wept over this temple and it didn't compare in their eyes to what they had seen in the past. And then I felt so strongly that the Lord showed me in verse nine, in this place, I will give peace in this place, in this time. And you know what? Oh, he has. He has. As a matter of fact, I, I just want to say this as a, 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 just a moment of confession and repentance. We're living through a phenomenal season as a church. We are. There, there are people who are coming to know the Lord people who are starting to embrace ministry, people who are growing in their faith. I I don't know that there's been a time that we've experienced this level of health. It has been phenomenal. It has been, what God is doing right now is amazing. Now, I do want to say this. I will not preach again until our 10th birthday, which is on September 11th, which is also my birthday when I will turn 45. And I do want to make an application of this to some of us that are in the room. Maybe you're here and the Christian faith is not new to you. Church attendance isn't new to you. You've come, you've attended some, and then you you got really involved and you backed off, you walked away. Maybe there's some of you that you've done that in the past. I got really involved in that church and it was good, but I just felt a little burned out. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. In the same way that Haggai looked to the people of God, it was as if he was saying, you need to get back in the game. You get back in the game. You, you, You got away from it. You got away from it. You got into building your own kingdom, building your own life, building up your own house. You need to get back in the game. You need to serve. You need to be plugged into life-giving relationships. Get back in the game. Why? Because God's got more for you. He's got more for you. He's not done with you. There's more in his heart to invest in your life than you've ever, ever imagined. 
and you've got more to give to. Get back in the game. Get up off your butts. Stop being lacy. Get your priorities in order and start. Why? Because this world needs the people of God to be the church. They need it. You build your kingdom. You can seek your life first. But at the end, that's all you got. But if we'll build the kingdom of God, God promises everything. I got it all for you. So if we'll build his kingdom, we get to the end, there's a lot more that hangs in the balance with that. Now, as we wrap this up today, I want to ask you a couple questions. All right, number one, have you been focusing on building your life more than God's kingdom? Have you been focusing on building your life? Wandered away from serving, took a step back from giving. Oh, you know, I'm almost tired. And all of a sudden, what happened? The priorities inverted. And where there was a, a vibrant relationship with God in the same way that I've sat across from men who have walked away from it and looked at are you better for it? No, I'm not. I'm not. Be your answer too. Have you been focused on building your life more than God's kingdom? Here's number, number two, just practically. What's your life producing? What's being produced out of your life? Are you filled with anxiety and worry and fear and doubts and all of the things that are so negative and gross and broken? Are you filled with that? Or are you filled with faith and anticipation and joy? What's your life producing? God, multiple times in this book, consider your ways because your ways are producing your fruit. And if you're doing it your own way, you get what you get. But if you do it God's way, you get what he wants to give you. Here's a number, another one. Number three, where are you telling God, I can't do that. It's impossible. I can't forgive that person. I can't let go of that. I can't be obedient in that area. That's impossible. Where are you telling God, I can't do that. It's impossible. That's a place where the life of God wants to come alive in you where you can see that obedience turns the impossible into something easy. And then lastly, have you stopped building your temple? Have you stopped doing the work in your life to build a spiritual life that's growing and taking the next step? Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.